Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just pray now as we come to this time of our service where we open up your word. Lord, as we listen to your voice, we pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, open up our ears to hear your word, Lord, and to obey it. So, Lord, teach us from your word today. And this I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be kind of, kind of looking at the whole chapter this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Now, uh, what is the church's role in society? When we think about that, you know, there's a lot of roles that we play in society, of course, but one of the many roles that we play is to be a, an example of biblical morality in our culture. Uh, we should be the light of Christ in the world, right? The light of God in the world. We should exemplify biblical morality in the world. However, in the, last, in the latter half of the 20th century and the first half now of the 21st century, what we have seen is a, a secularization of the church. So instead of the church exemplifying biblical morality to the world, what has happened so much across the, the, the continent, especially in America, uh, the church has become more secular. And instead of exemplifying biblical morality, the church, foreign and great, has adopted the secular morality. And we've seen that, especially here in America. We've seen so many denominations fall by the wayside, no longer teaching biblical morality at all, but adopting the world's morality as their standard of living. It could be argued that at least one of the reasons why we see this secularization of the church is the abandonment of church discipline. The abandonment of church discipline. Now, we don't like to talk about church discipline. No church likes to talk about church discipline. And, and so much it's not even avoided in the pulpit. People, preachers don't like to talk and preach about church discipline because it, it's, it's not a comfortable thing to talk about. And, and so it's been kind of shoved out of the way, and churches really don't like to practice church discipline because you can't build a church, right? You, you can't uh, build a big, humongous, mega church when you practice church discipline because that's not the popular thing to do. We're supposed to avoid our sin, look over sin, let everybody just kind of do what they want to do and not worry about it. We're to look over church discipline, but that's not what God's Word tells us. That's not what God's Word tells us to do. God's Word teaches us the priority of church discipline within the life of the local church. So what is church discipline? Well, discipline itself is the practice of training people to obey rules or a code of behavior using punishment to correct disobedience. We, we kind of know that, right? Well, our parents discipline us. They use uh, punitive actions to, to correct our bad behavior. And the same is, is, uh, is for the church. 
what is the code of conduct that the church wants to exemplify? What is the code of conduct that we want all of our church members to follow after? Well, it's God's code, right? It's biblical morality. What God says in his book is right, is right, and what's wrong is wrong. And so we want to conform to God's word, his commandments, his law. That's what we are called to conform to. And so the goal of church discipline is to see all of our membership working on that, working to conform to God's word, working on that progress of uh, on that process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus Christ. God disciplines his own. God disciplines us, right? Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 12 verse 7 and then down to tr- uh, verse 10. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And then verse 10 says, God's discipline, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. That's his aim for us. That's his goal for our life, is that we would be more like God, more like Christ. And so God lovingly disciplines us in our life to get us there. When we're off on the wrong track, God disciplines us. He puts things in our life to get us back on track, to get us living a godly life. So God disciplines his own. And God calls for the church to discipline as well. He calls for the church to practice discipline. And we don't like to talk about discipline. It's not popular but we must. We must. You know, I think one of the reasons that we, we really have neglected discipline and church discipline has kind of gone, uh, it, it's kind of not even talked about anymore, is because we have forgotten the purpose of church discipline. We've forgotten the overall purpose of church discipline. In our text today, Paul teaches us the purpose of church discipline. So I want to see that today. He teaches us a bunch of of things, so we're going to come back to this text next week. We're looking at the whole chapter today, and we're going to look at the purpose or the, uh, the, uh, the motives behind church discipline. And then next week, we'll return to it and go through this text again to see the manner of church discipline. But today, we're going to look at the motives of church discipline. And in our text today, we see three motives of church discipline. Three motives. Three motives of church discipline. And to summarize those motives, if we want to put it in summary form, uh, we can say this, that church discipline is an act of love that glorifies Christ. Church discipline is an act of love. It's done out of love and for the glory of Jesus Christ. So I hope today that we shine a more favorable light on church discipline. So as we think about 1 Corinthians, I want to take just a moment to remind you of the context in which we are in chapter 5. Chapters 1 through 4, Paul has been addressing another problem in the church, the problem of factionalism. And so we've seen these divisions in the church at Corinth, but now he, he, he kind of turns gears, he changes gears here just a little bit. Now he's addressing another problem, and this is the problem of immorality within the church. And the church is just not doing anything about it. There's just open immorality, and the church is kind of like bragging about it. 
And, and Paul says, no, 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 this is a problem, and we need to correct that. And one of the ways that we correct that is with this church of discipline. So that's where we are picking up today. If you found your place there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Now hear the word of the Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Are you, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing, which which you, when you, excuse me, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the, the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Amen. And may the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. So three motives of church discipline. The first motive that we see in our text is the salvation of the sinner. Church discipline is for the salvation of the sinner. Return again there to verses 1 through 5. It is actually reported that it is, there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated even among the pagans. Now, this is serious business, right? There's this sexual immorality that's being openly practiced within the church, and, 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 they're not, and it's a kind of a sexual immorality that even is, isn't tolerated with the folks outside the church, with the pagans. I mean, they're the most sexually Im, Im, impure people around, but they don't even tolerate this kind of sexual immorality. For a man has his father's wife. Now, what's taking place here is apparently there was a man, this, this son, 
whom something has happened to dad, and now this son has moved in his stepmom into his house, and they're living together, right? They're having relations. And he says, this is the kind of stuff that's, that the pagans, they don't even do this kind of thing. But look what's happening in the church. And you are arrogant. You're arrogant about this. You're allowing this sexual immorality to go on in the church, to be flaunted out in the church. So the, the public knows it's going on. You know what's going on. And, and not only are you turning a blind eye to it, but you're arrogant about it. Man, this is what we see in, in churches today. This is what we see in so many churches today, in so many denominations, right? There's this vast sexual immorality uh, taking place throughout our culture, our culture is going through what's called the, the sexual revolution, right? And, and there's this kind of practice that's taking place all out in our culture. Now the pagans are joining in with it, right? They're, they're adopting this. And what's ha taking place in the church, the church is saying, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to prove that. Yes, we're going to celebrate homosexuality. We're going to celebrate sexual immorality. We're, we're going to celebrate when, when people are living together when they're not married. We're going to celebrate that. We're going to rejoice in that. And that church is adopting this kind of morality, this secular kind of morality, and they're celebrating it. Oh, what God must be thinking about the American church today when the American church, and it's not just those way off their denominations. We see it even in the Baptist denomination, friends. I, I'm telling you. We see so many people, they're celebrating Sexual immorality, morality that is far, far, far from, removed from God's word. And people are just going around like it's no big deal. Oh, that's just the way it is this, these days. People do that, right? They try out the relationship for a while before they actually get married. That's okay. It's okay. That's just the way things are. We don't think about it. We don't pay attention to it. But that's not God's way of, of morality. That's not his way of living. That's not how he defined things, how he created things to, to be. We can't turn a blind eye to that. Oh, we're no better than the, Corinth, the Corinthians who were arrogant, arrogant towards sexual immorality. The church today has become arrogant towards sexual immorality in our culture and in our churches. They are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? I mean, this is reason to mourn over what's taking place. And still celebrating it, we should be mourning over it. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has been done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit and as if present. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, I know you're saying, what's that about? We're going to come back to that next week. So be here next week to find out what it means to deliver this person over to Satan. But catch this, so that, this is the reason, this is the purpose this is why you need to turn this dude over to Satan so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I want you to think about what's taking place. Here is a man who is professing to be a Christian, right? He is saying, I am a believer. I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm following Jesus Christ. He's coming to church. He's showing up week after week. Yet he's got this blatant sin in his life, and he is absolutely unrepentant about it. Unrepentant. He doesn't care. This is my lifestyle. This is Yes, I believe in Jesus, but this is my way of living, and I'm going to do it regardless. I, this is, I'm going to do this. Well, what does his lifestyle say about him? You see, because we, we understand in Scripture that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, what takes place is that the Holy Spirit comes and, and we are born again. We are born again believers, right? The Holy Spirit does a work in us. He regenerates us. He changes us. So that our, our attitudes aren't the same as they used to be. Our desires aren't the same as they used to be. Yes, there's still that struggle with the flesh. But now we have a, a new life in us, a spiritual life in us that, that drives us to follow after God's will. That's why Scripture says it is God who is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His spirit is working in us to change our desires. But when a person is living outside the will of God, not just for a moment, not just a, a slip here and there, but actively living a lifestyle of sin, and they're unrepentant about it, I don't care. I don't care what God's word says about my relationship with this woman, with this man. I don't care. I'm going to do this because this is what I want. When a person actively lives that way, they are demonstrating a life that is outside of Christ. A life that hasn't been changed. This man is demonstrating lostness, not salvation in Christ. Now, is it possible for a Christian to live demonstrating lostness and still salvation? Yes, it is absolutely possible that we can get on a roll and we get caught up into drugs and alcohol and things like that. And we can kind of have this backslide for a moment. If we continue in that, then it's really, uh, it's demonstrating lostness. But it is possible to drag out of that. But this person is demonstrating not salvation in Christ. He is demonstrating lostness. Jesus makes this point clear in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 20. Here he's talking about false prophets, but what he's saying about false prophets also pertains to the average Christian, right? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, they look the part, right? They look the part. They talk the talk. They do all of these things. They look like believers. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy, tree, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You recognize people by their fruits. How is a person living? Is that person living, displaying the glory of Christ in their life? Are they displaying godly morality? 
they may not be perfect, but are, are, they, are they trying to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Or are they blatantly rebellious? You see people all the time, they come and they make these professions of faith so they can get that fire insurance right, but nothing changes. They continue living in sin. They continue to live in disobedience to God's word. The evidence of their life, the fruit of their life is bad fruit, which is an indicator that they're not a good, they're not a good fruit tree, right? They're a bad tree. They're a diseased tree. They are still stuck in their sinful life. They are lost. They are lost. Paul will say it like this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immorality neither the sexually immoral nor idolater nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God because those people those people who live in those kinds of lifestyle demonstrate that they are a bad tree they're a diseased tree they produce bad fruit they're lost And here's a man in the church who is demonstrating bad fruit. He is producing bad fruit. The sinful lifestyle is evidence of lostness. But we also understand that there's coming a day of judgment. That's why Paul says it like that. Look there again at the end, end of that. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Paul is looking towards the day of judgment that is to come. The day when the Lord returns. And every human being will have to stand for him and give an account. And those who are outside of Christ, they will be condemned to the second death, to hell. For all of eternity. You see, we understand that day is coming. And when we see a brother and a sister in our church who proclaims to be a child of God, yet they are demonstrating lostness in their life, they're producing bad fruit that testifies that they're lost rather than saved, and we turn a blind eye to that, we are basically saying, we don't care if you go to hell. We just don't want to deal with the uncomfortableness of addressing your sin. We would rather you die and go to hell than to address your sin and maybe you come to faith in Christ. That's what we're saying. And there's church members, all churches filled with people who are dying and going to hell and the rest of the church is happy and content to let them die and go to hell just so they don't have to address their sin. Just so they don't have to practice church discipline and get a little uncomfortable. Paul says this is a disgrace. This is a disgrace. This brother is going to hell and you're turning a blind eye to it. You see, we got to understand that church discipline is not an act of hatred. It's not an act of spite. It's not an act of meanness. It is an act of love. We should be looking at that lost person who is sinning, who has sin in their life and they're demonstrating losses. We should look at them with love. And desire to do anything possible 
to see them repent from their sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ. Think about if your child was doing something. You, you caught them playing with a, a loaded gun. You've warned that child, leave the guns alone. Don't mess with the guns. They will kill you. They will destroy you. Imagine you walk in the house, you find your five-year-old child playing with a loaded gun, and you say, oh, well, you know, it's not much I can do about it. If I tell him no, he's just going to throw a fit, and it's going to be a big scene. I'm going to have to deal with all that. Okay, I'm just going to let you play with it, and if you kill yourself, that'll be fine. Yet that's what the church does when it neglects church discipline with its members. You're, paying, you're playing with something that's going to destroy your eternal life. But you know what? We don't want to deal with that. We don't, want to be dis we don't want to feel that discomfort of having to address your sin. So you just go on playing with that. You go on and destroy your life. You go on and go to hell. We don't care. We've got to understand, church discipline is not an act of hatred. It's not an act of spite. It's not an act of meanness. It's an act of love. Agape love. I want to see you saved. You're going down a route that's going to end in eternal damnation, and I want to get you on a right route. Let me help you. Church discipline is for the salvation of the sinner, to see the sinner repent from their sin, trust in Jesus Christ, and be able to stand on the day of judgment and say, my life is in Him, in Jesus. Church discipline is for the salvation of sinners. Second, second motivation for church discipline is the sanctification of the church. The sanctification of the church. Notice what he says in there in verse 6 and 7. 6 and 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Now, the church is called to holiness. We know this, right? We're children of God. We're called to holiness. We're called to be holy. We're called to be sanctified, to be separate from the rest of the world. We are that. That's why he says there at the end, because you really are unleavened, right? The church is unleavened. The church is holy. We've been declared holy because Christ went to Calvary's cross. He lived in perfect holiness, perfect obedience to the will of God, and yet he went to Calvary's cross and he died on the cross for us, for our sin. And he was raised again so that he can give us his holiness, his sanctification. And so we are sanctified. We are unleavened. We are holy because we're holy in Christ. But scripture also tells us that we're to become holy. We're to become holy. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling because it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're to work out our salvation. We're to work out our holiness. We still got sin in this old body of flesh. This old body of flesh still desires sinful things and we got to work that out. 
So we gotta, we got to crucify the sinful desires so that we can live in holiness to God. we got to do both of those things. That's the Christian life. It's a, a life of suffering, of constantly putting our, ourself on Calvary's cross, crucifying self, crucifying sinful desires so that we can live for God. That's our life. That's what we're called to do. And that's why we're gathered together as one body, as a church, so that we don't have to do this alone. So I'm not crucifying myself on my own, but, but you're helping me, right? You're watching me, and I have brothers here who, who if they see me mess up, they're going to come to me, and they're going to say, brother, I, I see this in your life, and, and it's a snare, it's a trap. You, you need to quit that. So we, we help one another to, to grow in holiness, to grow in sanctification, but like as Miss Sue was talking about earlier, when you got that bad fruit in the midst of the good fruit, what happens? The rot begins to go out from the rotten fruit and it begins to infect the good fruit. Other fruits, the other, the other pieces of fruit start getting spots on them. They begin to get mold and fungus on them. And, and the, before you know it, the whole batch is rotten because of one bad apple or one bad strawberry. And so the purpose, another purpose of church discipline is to, to root out the rotten, to root out the rotten so that the whole body doesn't become infected with the disease. Think about if you, if you have an injury, you have an, an infection on your leg. Right, a big old open sore on your leg, and, and it starts getting infected, and, and you say, well, I, just re I really don't like to go to the doctor, so I'm just, gonna, I'm just not going to worry about it, rub some dirt on it, it'll be all right. And then what happens? It starts spreading. The infection starts to spread, and you see those red streaks coming up out of the infection. What's happening? Well, that infection is now spreading now, not to the, 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 the spot there, the, the wound, but now it's, it's spreading to the rest of the muscle in the leg. And before long, what happens? You either got to cut off the whole leg because gangrene is beginning to set in and you got to cut off the whole leg or you just allow it to all go and, and it destroys the whole body. And that's what happens when you allow sin to remain in the church unaccounted for. When you just be arrogant, when you become arrogant towards sin like these church members in Corinth are doing, they're arrogant towards it. They're not, they're boasting in it. Yeah, this guy's living, but that's all right. We're covered with grace. It's all right. He can, he can live a sinful life because it's all about grace. We're just going to let him go. And his infection, his disease will eventually spread to the rest of the church. And before you know, the church is dead. Let's look at some of the mainline denominations around us today who were once thriving, thriving gospel-centered denominations, who proclaimed the gospel plainly and clearly, yet they began to make a compromise here and a compromise here. Now they fully adopted homosexuality. They fully adopted transgender. They fully adopted all the world's sense of secular morality. They've adopted it all. And what's happening? Their church is dying. Those churches are absolutely dying because they're no different from the rest of the world. 
Dear friends, the evil has to be rooted out. The evil has to be rooted out before it infects the whole church. Church discipline is for the sanctification of the church. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Continue to hang out with, with sinners, and guess what? You're going to start adopting their sinful lifestyle. Church discipline is for the salvation of the sinners and the sanctification of the church. And third, the final, third and final uh, motive of church discipline is the glory of Christ. Church discipline is for the glory of Jesus Christ. Return there to the second part of, of verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb. So, cleanse out the old leaven, right? Because, for, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sac uh, sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, that is the Lord's Supper, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The reason, another reason we practice church discipline or are to practice church discipline is for the glory of Christ because we bear the name of Christ. We bear the name of Jesus Christ and therefore our actions bear upon Him and our culture's view of Him. That's why he's saying there at the end, this is a person who bears the This is what you do, not to anybody and everybody. You, we don't judge those who are outside of the church, but those who bear the name brother. That is, they bear the name of Jesus Christ. They're proclaiming, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But yet, every action that they take is in opposition to Christ. Well, what does that do to the name of Christ? If we say we're Christian, we're followers of Jesus Christ, but yet we're living in open sexual immorality, open idolatry, then what are we saying? We're saying this is okay with Jesus. This is how Jesus is. Jesus is okay with sexual immorality. Jesus is okay with idolatry. Jesus is okay with all of this type of sinful lifestyle. And people look at that and say, well, what, what, what good is Jesus then? Because Jesus doesn't make any difference from anybody else in the world. I can just keep on living the life that I'm living, follow my own way, and not have to worry about coming to church, not have to worry about uh, all the things that y'all do down there at First Baptist, right? It brings a bad name to the name of Jesus. Now, more and more, we don't see this in our culture because our culture cares a little bit about family names anymore. But, you know, I always grew up that yeah, I wasn't supposed to defame the name Gamble, right? I'm a Gamble. That name means something. My grandfather, it meant something for, to him to say the name Gamble. I mean, that, that stands for integrity. That stands for, for honor and respect. And so when I grew up, I didn't want to ever defame the name Gamble because that's my family name. 
All of us should feel that way, right? We should feel that way. Not about our family name, but the name of Christ. Why would we ever want to do anything to defame the name of Christ? He died for us. He sacrificed for himself for us and for our sins. Yet we want to turn our backs on Christ and live in open disobedience to his will. We are defaming his name when we do such a thing. And when we allow that sin to go unchecked in the church, we're saying to the world, this is okay. It's okay to live in sexual immorality. Yeah, my Christ didn't die for that. He didn't die for idolatry. He didn't die for all of these things. It wasn't such a serious sin that he had to give his life for it. No, no, you defame his name. So church discipline, it's not just about us. And it's not just about the sinner, but it's about the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. How dare we defame his name and allow his name to be defamed? Church discipline glorifies Christ by showing the world that we believe his word is truth. His word is truth. That's why he says that at the end there. We, 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 we observe the feast. We celebrate the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We're not hypocrites preaching one thing and living something else. But we're sincere. We believe this. We believe God's word is truth. And we live it out because it's truth. Church discipline glorifies Christ by showing the world that we believe his word is truth and we follow after him in sincerity and truth. Church discipline glorifies Christ by exemplifying Christ-like biblical morality to our world. When the church gets serious about following God's way and gets serious about uh, even church discipline, though as uncomfortable as that can be, when the church begins to do what God says to do and we're obedient in all of his ways, then what happens? We begin to exemplify Christ to the world. And we begin to be that, that light that used to be here in the American church. The, the American church used to be a light of godly behavior, of godly morality to our culture. We need to get rid of the secularization. We need to go back to God's word and God's way of doing things. And practice even the uncomfortable things. For the salvation of sinners for the sanctification of the church and the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to understand that church discipline is hard. It is hard. It is, dis it is difficult. And I hope we never have to practice church discipline. Church discipline is something that should never be, be practiced often, flippantly like with a flippant attitude about it just let's do it here let's do it there let's do it for anything it should only be a last resort when all other avenues of of work have been exhausted and there's the last ditch effort to to get this person back on track but when it is necessary it should be remembered that it should be practiced out of love as an act of love and for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
Oh, church, may we be obedient to the, to the Lord. If ever it comes to a point in our church that church discipline needs to be administered, may we be faithful to follow the Word of God, to do it right, which we'll look at next week, but also to do it with the right motives, always out of love. Love for the sinner, love for Christ's church, and love for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what I've talked about is hard. It's hard to preach on church discipline, let me tell you. It's not, not one that you want to pick up very often because it is, a, it is a tough subject. But I want you to know if you're here today and you maybe, wait a minute, I don't know about all this stuff. You've never trusted in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You've never given your life to him. I want you to know the day that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He gave his life for you to change you. To make you a new creation, a new person. And if you'll trust in him, he will save you and deliver you from your sin. So that on that day of judgment, you don't have to stand before him with your sin, but you can stand before him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and enter into eternity with him. But know this, if you remain in your sin and you stand before Christ in your sin, he will judge you rightly and send you to everlasting damnation in a devil's hell. Let today be that time of warning. And let today be that day of salvation where you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus. Oh, Heavenly Father. Lord, we do pray that we would never see a point where we would have to exercise church discipline. It's not a fun thing, just like it's not a fun thing to discipline our own children. It's not a fun thing to have to discipline our loved ones in church. But Lord, there are times that your word calls for it. And so, Lord, if those occasions ever arise, Lord, again, I pray that we would do it for the right reasons. Out of love for the sinner, love for your church and love for your name. Now, Father, I know today there are certainly those who are, have, have never really trusted in you. And Lord, even though this hasn't been a, a strictly gospel message as we might, might think of, an evangelistic message, Lord, you work in, in different ways. And so, Lord, I pray today for those who are lost. That, Lord, today you might touch their hearts and let them turn to Christ and be saved. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.